0: Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church podcast. With multiple campuses existing within southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. Good morning. It's great to see everyone here as we gather uh, today and uh, continue um, our series called The Good Book. Uh, we were joking this morning, someone says this is part 17. Uh, it is not, it's only part five. And um, But what we were talking about, if you have uh, been around or maybe you're new back to the church and you've grown up in the church and they pick up the Bible and they teach from the Bible and they read the Bible or we read the Bible, and you wonder like, why do we read the Bible? What is it for? How do we use it? So we're exploring all those questions, trying to give sort of a sense of freshness to how we approach uh, the Bible and My hope and prayer is that this will, this will uh, be useful for you so that it comes alive, so that you begin to see and hear and sense what God has to say to you um, through His Word. If you have your Bibles, you're going to look in the book of Isaiah uh, this morning. It's, it's in the, uh, to the middle, just to the right. Uh, you'll see Psalms and Proverbs, and you'll see some uh, Isaiahs right, right past that. Isaiah chapter 55. And, um, but I want to just kind of walk through multiple places and invite us in. We're going to begin this morning, uh, the same way we've ended our last few times together, reading the Bible together, uh, reading the Bible together and just seeing what God has to say to us, to you, um, in this moment here today. We're going to look at a passage we've looked at uh, last week in 1 John uh, chapter 2. And so we're going to, I know everybody's we've, we've just been singing together and worshiping. And so we're all kind of relaxed and hopefully... The weight of the world is kind of washed off of you for just a minute. We're gonna take just a deep breath and say, God, can you could you speak to me? Could you show me what you want to say to me this morning? And then we're gonna read um, this passage together out of 1 John chapter 2. But if anyone who obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. And this is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him. Must live as Jesus did. When you read that, there's emotion or thoughts or something comes to your mind, maybe to your heart. Maybe you feel like I should do better. You feel like maybe God's love isn't doing things because you're not good at obeying His word. Or maybe you think, which word should I obey? Like, what should I be doing? What should I not be doing? Or you know, all the kind of things that you're maybe you feel a sense of shame or guilt or distance or you don't even know where to begin. Whatever the emotion you feel is, what does God have to say to us? Suppose rather than trying to read it to figure out what you're supposed to be doing or not doing, if you just said, Lord, would you speak to me and tell me something that this helps me understand about what it means to bear your image? We spent the last few weeks talking about what the Bible teaches us and the instructions of the Scriptures are given to us to remind us that we have been returned to God. That our primary task is to bear His image. We are responsible to represent God in this world and we are responsible for His intentions in the world. It's a redemption of that original purpose that we've been given. When you read this again, when you begin to notice, we're going to use this again but back in 1 John chapter 2, let's read it again together. And this time I want you to think about what the implications of our obedience actually would be. If anyone obeys his word, the love for God is truly made complete in them. What do you think God's intention is? To get you to obey his commandments or to have his love made complete in you? Do you see how different that is? Most of us assume that God wants us to obey him, so that's where we focus. And what he's consumed with is bearing his image through his people, through those whom he has created. And so he's inviting us into is that there's a way for us, for his love to be complete in us. It requires something from us, namely obedience. And so I want to look at that today or this morning as we talk about this idea. Jesus was clear when he talked about the scriptures that they all point to him, and he saw himself as fulfilling them. In fact, his first message in the temple recorded for us, Jesus reads a prophecy from Isaiah and he says, today these words are fulfilled in me. Now it'd be like me reading a passage out of Isaiah and said, today all that you read is about me. That's what it would be, like. be like. Whoa, what is this? This is something different. And so this is how he talks about this. What we also learn is that this is not something that is just happening, but it's something that you and I as human beings, as those who've been created by him and for him, are actually contributing towards. We're either contributing in ways that are redemptive and bringing the kingdom, bringing the life that God intends to bear on the world, or we're undermining those things. There's not a neutral ground that we contribute in this idea. So our allegiance to Jesus, our way of understanding what he has to say, and then living that out has implications on the world around us. When you see the Bible. Sorry, we've looked at this, um, this idea that it claims in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 3 that it is God breathed. God breathed in God's breath from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when God breathes into the first human, He He, uh, he animates or He sources, God's spirit sources them with life and we're invited or included to participate in what God is doing. And so we can say he participates or calls or includes or some version of that. You see this again in Genesis, or sorry, in John chapter 20. I think we looked at this on Easter Sunday. Remember when Jesus shows up in the room with his disciples and he says, peace be with you. And then he breathes on them. He goes, ah. remember how odd that was? Someone comes and like says something that they just breathe on you like, dude, that's kind of weird. And he breathes on them and he says, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. He sources them with his presence and his peace and his spirit, receive the Holy Spirit, and invites us to continue and to participate with him. Even the way this is used in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all scripture is profitable, is God breathed, it is profitable, it's beneficial, it's useful for teaching and correction and training and righteousness so that the servant of God would be equipped for all the purposes that God has for him. It's the same pattern that you see. It's something that God breathes. It sources, it breathes life into us for the specific purpose of cooperating or participating with what God is doing in the world around us. It has very little to do with some moral standard that he expects humans to live with. And it has everything to do with us bearing his image and being responsible as contributors and cooperators with him the way he has intended us to be. And this is what I want for us to see the scriptures in this tonight. The way we talk about the Bible and this, I'm gonna put this up there, I've put this up there in the last five weeks. I'm gonna do it again and do it again next week. So you have this, and I want you to understand what we think and what we believe about the Bible. The Bible is a collection of writings that reveal God's love, God's pursuit, and his promise of redemption. These are three very important uh, sort of threads in the scriptures. God breathed and sovereignly preserved. The Bible reveals to us who God is and what he has to say. Ultimately pointing us to Jesus is our clearest revelation of God. If you want to know what God is like, look first to Jesus. Look first to Jesus. So, Here's how I want us to think about this. I'm going to sort of show you or draw the Bible out to you. Most of us, we have this idea that the Bible is, is, uh, uh, comes to us in two parts, right? The Old Covenant and the New Covenant, or the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is a true and right way to understand it. A lot of us, when you read your Bible, if you open your Bible up uh, to the middle, there's this, or about two-thirds of the Bible is the Old Covenant Uh, 39 of the 66 books contained. A lot of us just sort of think this thing that that a group of people sat down and decided what's going to be in and what's going to be out. But this really evolved over time in really beautiful ways. When I say sovereignly preserved, it is a miracle that we have what we have. This is ancient literature that is preserved very carefully for us. And the glimpse it gives us into the world in which Jesus lives and what it has for us is miraculous. I remember looking at my Bible and I would always, look, this was always my favorite page in the Bible. It's this little blank page in the middle between It's just I was like a little thin and kind of cool. And it was always was like, this is kind of cool. I was just always liked it. I don't know why. But this page represents about 400 years. A lot of people have grown up calling it the 400 years of silence because it's the distance between when Malachi was written and when Jesus emerged on the scene. But it wasn't 400 years of silence. You ever heard of Alexander the Great? He happened in this page. You ever heard of Plato or Aristotle? They happened in this page. Stuff was happening. I kind of grew up to think that nothing was going on in the world in this part, but everything was going on in the world. Rome was being built. All, these Greek, uh, was, was, I mean, all this was happening all in this little page. And what happens is you get to this point in time. This is real history of how this works and comes to us. And so what happens is this is written. And about the time of Jesus, Jesus shows up um, on the scene, let's say somewhere around here. And then about 33 years later, Jesus dies on the cross, right? And in this span between him teaching and and him, he would use phrases like the scriptures or the law of the prophets and the writings of the law of the prophets and the Psalms. And he knew about this Old Testament or this, what we call the Old Testament. The Hebrews would have all known this, especially the, the Jewish culture there. They called this the Tanakh. Have you ever heard of this? You want to impress your friends? Just tell them that we were reading out of the Tanakh this morning. They'll think that's very cool. Our Old Testaments, we tend to to, to break it up with history and law and the prophets, major and minor, and then the wisdom literature. That's how most of you, if you've heard, that's how it's broken up. The Hebrews had a little bit different way of thinking about this old Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. It was made up of the Torah, which most of us are familiar of or we have heard, right? The Torah. The Torah is the law. And then this is just an acrostic, T-N-K. Uh, sorry, it's N-I-V-I-I-M. It's the Nevi'im, is the N, and this simply means the prophets. And then the K, these three components, the K would be the k Ketuvim, and this just simply means writings. And when Jesus was talking about this, he would say the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, he was referring to the Tanakh, what they would have all known to be this. And then what happens is this was completed probably about 200 years before Jesus shows up on the planet. So they had all of this already. So the question is, how would they have read this? How would they have understood this? What would they have been looking for? And at the risk of oversimplifying this, I'm going to tell you that the Old Covenant is essentially I don't know where to write this now is essentially a story of human longing and anticipation for some kind anticipation, and some kind of anticipation for what was to come, looking for a messiah, looking for God to come and redeem the world, to restore or to return us to what God had originally intended. So all of this is happening. So then Jesus is crucified. He is resurrected. And out of his resurrection begins this movement. And what happens is a lot of us, there's this place that we now have, and we call it the New Testament, right? So you have the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Promise, and the New Testament or the New Promise or the New Covenant. And what happened was Jesus begins to, 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 uh, the movement of Jesus, Jesus crucified, resurrected, he ascends. And then all this begins to swirl around. And somewhere by around 90 years later, after Jesus' birth, right after this point, they begin to write all, or the the writings are completed. Somewhere around 50 is when the first one's in. So 20 years after Jesus' death, they begin to write this down, mostly with the letters of Paul and begin to circulate. So all these movements of Jesus, these, these pockets of Jesus followers all throughout the region are getting these letters. And they're looking at them. They're trying to understand them. They're trying to say, what is this about? And what, what happened is then a couple hundred years later, you get the completion of the New Testament. And it wasn't to try and say, what is what gets authority? They weren't trying to figure out what are we going to give authority to. They were looking around and saying what has already been circulated and has already given authority by the church. This is what was already being used and looked to for guidance and understanding regarding what God has to say to his people. Does that make sense? Then they put this together and that's where we get our Bibles. That's where it comes to be. But the way you think of this, if the story of the Old Testament is longing and anticipation, the story of the New Testament The first sort of quarter of it, the Gospels, are all about Jesus and his teachings. And half of that talks about his death and his resurrection. And then all the rest of the Bible is about the implications of Jesus in terms of what he did to fulfill or to satisfy what we were longing for and anticipating. That's my summation of the Bible. That's what you have in your hands. It's not a rule book. You don't read it like you're putting together a gas grill. Right? Oh, here's instruction one. It comes to us very differently. And it changes or shapes the way we read this. And all of us experience the world with some kind of perspective, some kind of assumption about things. Maybe the way to think of this is what promise, right? um, Do you hold? What do you think that you have been promised? Because whatever you think that you have been promised in this world, will determine how you interact with the world. It'll determine how you interact with one another. It'll determine how you respond and react to people and circumstances, whatever you have been promised. And you're going, I've never thought of it like that. Well, of course you don't, because that's not how we think of things. But we all have grown up in a culture that we think we have been promised something. And because we've grown up in the United States of America, great place to be grown, to be born into. But a lot of us, we believe the promise that is available to us is life, liberty, and he guesses what the third one is? The pursuit of happiness. That's the promise. So we've all grown up with this. We just assume that's ours to have. And for some of you, right, you've taken advantage of that because it's been a promise that you've been given. Others of you, you think it's life, liberty, and everybody needs to do what you tell them to do when you tell them to do it, right? That's your mode in the world. And so you're frustrated all the time because things and people don't work like that. We have this idea. Some of you, you think that this promise has been given to you and so you've taken advantage of it. Others of you, you think it has to be fought for because it's sort of been unfairly distributed and there are cases to be made for that. And so others of you think you have to fight to preserve it, to get back. All these things are happening around us. But it's all based on the promise that we think we live under. What has been promised to you? What is your expectation? And the same is true the way we think of the Bible. The old promise is if you obey God's commands, then he will bless you. And the new covenant says, no, all creation is going to be restored and redeemed through my promise, God said, regardless of what you and I do. And he invites us in to that promise to receive and to trust and to walk in it and to be returned, to live forgiven by what Jesus did, to be returned to bear his image and be responsible for his work in the world around us. We do not belong to the world as new promised people. But rather we have a responsibility to it. I love what um, N.T. Wright says about this. And he's English. He's got some kind of inflection problems in the quote. But I want you to to see this. Because a lot of us have grown up thinking that there's an authority in the scriptures that is true but is often misapplied. And I I have this conversation all the time. It's true there's an authority in the Scriptures, but what is the authority of them? Is it a particular verse that you pull out and use? Is it a story? Is it an, what is it? And so a lot of us, and some of us, you have been right on either the giving end or the blunt end of someone who used the authority of Scripture to prove their point, and it felt like a elbow off the third, third ring rope. Some of you have been guilty. This is how you have used the Bible to prove your point, sort of the lobbying, the the biblical grenades, and others Have you been on the receiving end of that. What authority do they have? N.T. Wright says it like this. He says, God he's written a paper about the authority of Scripture. It's beautifully done, but it's just a snippet. God wants the church to lift up its eyes and see the field ripe for harvest and to go out armed with the authority of Scripture, not just to get its own right life within a Christian subculture, It's not about us getting our little thing right and then holding up in our little world and debating and talking about all the things we already believe about God. But rather to use the authority of Scripture to declare to the world authoritatively that Jesus is Lord. This is is what we have to get, this is what we're invited into. He goes on, and this is where it gets a little British. And since the New Testament is the covenant charter of God's people, the new covenant is the operating uh, framework that you and I work within and work under. It's the uh, the covenant charter for the people of God. The Holy Spirit, I believe, desires and longs to do the task, to do this task in each generation by awakening people to the freshness of the covenant. Now, I doubt anybody woke up this week and was wondering about the freshness of the covenant. You were pondering that. But this is exactly what needs to happen. The freshness of the covenant. Here's the British part. And hence summoning them to fresh covenant tasks. To be awakened that we belong to God. That he's partnering with us. To have a, do you have a fresh sense of call for that? One of my own challenges personally that I try to do, and I try to do this frequently, you know, every so often, every few years, in particular at critical moments in my life, I Did it at 50. I spent two years trying to say God, to have a fresh sense of call, purports to the community church and a fresh sense of call to be a pastor here. You have to, you have to continually wrestle. It's not to be flippant, it's to, that there's a freshness that God is doing in seasons. It's for a generation. Part of this was about us understanding there's a generation coming behind us, and it's not just our obligation to make sure they know what we know. It's to make sure they can take the handles of what God has entrusted to us and then do what he wants to do in their generation in our wake. And we're we are seriously committed to this. Like we have we have put a ton of time and energy and effort to make sure this happens. And because this is our responsibility for this so there's a freshness of this promise that we have to learn how to live in. So how do we how, do we, how does God's word help us in this? What's well, interesting As God breathes his scriptures to us and preserves them, and please make no mistake, they are sovereignly preserved. It's miraculous. But there is an aliveness to them. There's also a timing to them. There's a context within which they operate both in all of this space, 2,000 years ago and beyond, and today. So here's how it comes to us You see this metaphor of how the scriptures are used. And let's look at this in Isaiah chapter 55, starting in verse 9. It's a great passage. The context is to seek the Lord while he's available to us. It's this pursuit. And then he says this in Isaiah 55, verse 9. As the heavens are higher than the earth. People put this on their coffee mugs, by the way. This is a cool one. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. And my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and they do not return without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that its seeds yield so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes forth from my mouth; it will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and it will achieve the purpose for which I have sent it. What's the metaphor? For God's word coming to us, it's rain, it's snow, it nourishes the ground, it seeps into the ground. It says that God's word will not return to him without accomplishing the purpose for which he intended. I used to read this as though this was a talk about God's sovereignty. Whatever God says is going to happen, regardless of what you and I do. You ever heard that message preached? It's not at all what this means. God's word goes forth and it accomplishes the purposes that he intends it for to that which receives it. If the ground receives the water, it receives the nourishment. If human beings receive and respond to God's word, we receive what he's asking, the life that he's breathing into us. This isn't about if you don't do it, God's going to do it anyway. This is about his invitation to do it through you, to call you into it, to invite you to participate. It's not about his sovereignty. It's about his provision. You see this again throughout. Again, we'll just kind of keep flipping through. Deuteronomy 32, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain and my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain on the tender grass and like showers upon the earth. Now, when you're in your quiet time and you're in a hurry, you have a really, it's, it's very difficult to stop and think about what that looks like. So you memorize things like this. Then I have a garden, two small gardens in my backyard, and I love to water them. I go out there. I have a hose that I've bought. It's long enough to reach. I get all the way out there, and I spray them very gently. And I spray them, and I water them, and I make sure they have what they want. My wife, on the other hand, she stands from the deck, and she jets them, baby. Like a So Those things are just like getting drummed. She's in here. She's going to kill me later. <laughs> but there's a picture. Like, what is the picture? The picture the dew, right, the, the, the dew distills into the earth. How does, like, you got to stop and think about what that looks like. It rests there and then it absorbs in. You know, the, the, this, 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 this whole picture, this whole metaphor for us, when Jesus was tempted in the desert in his temptation scene in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. He was tempted, right, to turn the stones into bread. He was hungry. Turn these stones into bread. What does Jesus say to him? Man shall not live by bread alone. Here's the exact quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Now, do you think that what he was saying is if you read the Bible, you don't have to eat bread? Was he saying that? Of course not. Of course not. So what's the metaphor? How many of you guys this morning ate enough breakfast for tomorrow night? You're like already full tomorrow night. Someone says you want dinner tomorrow night? You go, night no, Sunday morning. Does it work like that? No. So what's the metaphor here? What do you think the metaphor is? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. A lot of us read the Bible. Like you're going to get something and then it's going to be that. And you're going to just apply that like some kind of machine for the rest of your life. When God is inviting you to listen to his voice and to respond to his voice. To respond to his voice. Like water comes to us, right? If I decide I'm going out of town for a week, I don't like put a week's worth of water on my garden. It will probably kill it. It has to come as it needs it. This is one of the profound things, and I want you to kind of get this. A lot of us have thought that the sufficiency of scriptures, when you hear that phrase, that it means you don't need anything else. It's not what it means at all. I think the sufficiency of scripture isn't the fact that you don't need Something else. In fact, we're going to talk about what we do need in addition next week. But I think the sufficiency of scriptures assures me that I can be confident that what comes to me in this moment will be enough. That what God has to say to me is sufficient for his purposes for this time. Think about this. When he says, so this, this is freeing for me. How many of you already know everything you're supposed to know about God? Anybody? So there's more, right? There's, we, did, we know this. But what we think, right? What we think is that somehow, you know, we don't, I read, every time I read or prepare for message, I think, oh my gosh, Lord, I don't know enough to do my job. And that is completely true, but he is so sufficient to give me what I need in order to do what he is asking me to do. And that is true of me and that is true of you as we learn to respond to him. And this comes to us as we are responsive to what he has to say in the moments in which he has to say it. The reason he breathes life and his spirit into us is because we need a moment-by-moment dependence to hear so we can respond to him. Consider this real quickly. God's word brings God's will. Can we agree with that? When God spoke something, what he intended to happen, happened. When he said, let there be light, light happened. When he said, "You know," the, uh, whenever, whatever he said is what he caused to happen. So God's word brings God's will to bear. So what it makes sense also then, that responsiveness to God's word, right, is how we do God's will. A lot, a lot of us think, that God's will is about what job you're going to get, you know who you're going to marry, um, you know all, all the different things where you're going to live. This is this is God's will is like my master plan, my strategic plan for my life. And it's not God's will, is for His purposes, for His image, and the stewardship of His, His purposes to be stewarded by His people in every moment, which requires you and I to be responsive to. His Word to His Word. When I was growing up, um, we used to have a thing called responsive readings. If you grew up in the church, you might remember this. It was actually really cool because it was the one part where I really had to pay attention. And you could like, be zoned out in church. But this person up front was going to read something. There was a spot where it says all or congregation. And then you would have to read with them. And if you weren't paying attention, you wouldn't be reading. and Everyone would know you weren't paying attention. So I would be like glued in, man, when it's my part. And I'm always trying to figure out, am I at the right pace? Am I reading with everybody else? Am I too fast? Am I too slow? There's responsive reading. What I want to introduce you to is a concept called responsive hearing. Responsive reading is good. I would suggest that responsive hearing is a whole lot better. You know what responsive hearing is? It's called obedience. When you tell your kids to do something, hey, pick up your shoes And you come back five minutes later and they haven't done it. You know what question you usually ask them? Did you hear me? Do you know why? Because you think, surely if you heard me, right, you would have not responded to me. Because you you know that would be unthinkable. So you just say, maybe you didn't hear me. Because to hear, particularly in this culture, is to respond. For God to speak words to us, to say things to us, to accomplish his will, is for us to respond. It's why obedience matters. It's not about our moral standing in, you know, how good you feel about your moral character. It's about us being good stewards of his image and what he's doing in and through our lives. And what I've begun to learn, and we're going to read this again in just a moment, but then we're going to read this and we're going to use this to say, God, what do you have to say to us? I'm going to ask you some questions that I want you to reflect on. And if you don't reflect on these questions this week, I'm going to pray they'll haunt you for the rest of the week. How will that feel? But this, this, this idea that God is speaking to us isn't about he's giving you a principle to apply to every circumstance that you will face for the rest of your life. We have this notion that, you know, truth is sufficient for all times, for all people, that it's just a principle that gets applied equally in everything that is not How God has given us his word. It comes to us like bread and it nourishes and it breathes life and it creates and it shapes and it causes us. These sacred words come to us with a promise. One that was anticipated in the old covenant, one that was fulfilled in the new. There's a usefulness to what we read in the scriptures. It's useful for our learning. What are we learning about God? How is he revealing himself to us? It's useful in shaping our desires. It's useful in shaping our direction. I can tell you after years and years and decades of reading the Scriptures, I've memorized large chunks of it. I took very literally Psalm 119. How can a man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to the will of the Lord. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might have sinned against God. I took this very literally, I'd memorized chunks of the Bible. Not as some kind of magic incantation, but to, can I align my heart to incline my ears to hear what God is speaking or saying in a moment where I might be tempted to do one thing and rather respond than another. Or I might be prone to do one thing but rather respond than another. And there were places in my life where there were longings and desires that I had that were super selfish and super self-absorbed. I don't know if you can relate to that at all. There were some places where the longings and desires were just wrong. And I can tell you, all of them aren't better but a lot of them are there are places where those longings have been reshaped by learning how to respond to what God has to say to me in a moment his word will not return to him without accomplishing what he intends for it to do to create new life in you to bring hope and peace to you It does not return to him without accomplishing those things we have to receive it And to trust it, and learn to respond to what He's asking of us in those moments. So, I want to read this verse one more time. I want to ask you three questions to reflect on, and I hope you'll take a picture of them, or write them down, or just know that your pastor is going to be praying that you'll be haunted by them um, every waking moment. Just I'm I'm relying. I know it's a lot of, but I, I want us to get this. So I'm not joking. 1 John 2, but if anyone obeys his word, if anyone would be willing to obey his word, if you would be willing to respond to him, the love that God has for you would be filled in you. The love that God has for you would truly be complete in them. And this is how you can tell if this is happening. Whoever claims allegiance to him is going to begin to give evidence of his life in them. Now, I know I paraphrased that some. Because I want you to read What does God have to say to you? What does God have to say to you? And the reality is most of us probably have an inkling so here are the three questions. Are you ready? Question number one. Is there something that God seems to be saying to you? Seems to be. I want to be really, really intentional, right? Is there something God seems to be saying? Because you don't have to be sure. You just got to say, huh, I think this is what God's saying. And then you write it down. Write it down somewhere and then you talk to a trusted friend about it. You know, it's amazing to me the number of times that I've been praying about something or wrestling with something, and I'll go to a friend, and I'll say, hey, this is what I sense God doing, and that person will say, you know what, Mike, I've been praying about this, this is exactly what I wrote down or what I thought or whatever. And it happens to me, in our little pocket of, it happens all the time. And there are other times, right, when you go and you say, I think the Lord sent this to me, and go, nope, that's dumb, don't ever do that. Like, you just need people around you to help us process. There are too many lone rangers who think that God is doing stuff that he is not doing. And we need one another to do this. So, But you gotta, you gotta say, what does he seem to be saying? Number two, and let me make one more comment. This isn't about what you should do better. It's not about you should do better. It's about what is God saying to you? Number two, What would you be willing to do about what you hear? That's a big one. Because once you figure out maybe God's saying something, then all the justification and the fear and the wrestling and the second guessing begins to pour in. And I can tell you firsthand, I wanted to be an architect. Lord knows I did not want to do this. If I thought that's what God's saying. There were some trusted voices who helped me discern that. And it was terrifying and it was fearful because to do what God was saying to do required things from me, but I had to wrestle and determine if I was willing to give them. And the good news is it's totally worth it. The bad news is that never goes away. You will never walk with God and not be challenged to give of yourself in ways that you feel uncomfortable or don't want to do. That's a part of the process. So you have to ask yourself, what would you be willing to do? And it's a worthy wrestling match. It doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. It means you're human. And to be invited in to participate with God is risky and it costs and it requires. But think about this. To whoever is willing to obey, what's the promise? God's love. Is filled in you. Do you know what God's love is, right? It is the direct reflection of His image. As we obey and respond, His image is more fully born in who we become and how we enter into the world around us. To the degree that we refuse, we limit the very thing. That you are looking for the very thing that you are made to be. Obedience is not some pulling teeth, right? It's It's not. It's the invitation for you to live the life you've been created to live. Extraordinarily powerful. So the third question: What is at stake? What is at stake? What is it about your life and your relationships and your friends and your work that need, that need God's presence and his purpose and his promises, all those things? He says, oh, this all happens. We're willing to respond to him. Three questions. I hope you'll reflect on them. Or be haunted by them. Okay? Our mission at Port City Community Church is to reach people and to help them walk with God. Our pledge is to extend ourselves to one another, to help one another pursue and follow and do this, right? That's what we're trying to do. And part of that, and Clay mentioned it earlier in our gathering, I assume Danny and Don, if not just called y'all out in front of your campuses, did it in y'all's. But this summer, we know next week's Memorial Day, and a lot of you guys are like, you're gone. Like we're, It's summertime, baby. Um, I'm so excited about this summer. This has probably been one of the most intentional summers we have developed, and it's intentionally done to do that exact thing, to help you and I stay connected. There's been a freshness to what God is doing in our church over the last couple of years. I don't know if you can sense that or not. And I want for us to leverage this summer for that, and I don't want you to go, oh, you should feel bad about going on vacation. You shouldn't. We've created very intentional ways for you to stay connected and for us to read together through the Psalms and to stay connected so that we are all, when we are together and we are back together more consistently in the fall, there will be some work that has been done that will be ready to receive and to do what he is asking of us. And things I think are coming this fall I'm so excited about. So when you go ahead and commit today, start thinking of how can I stay engaged for the next you know, 13 weeks, the next 77 days in ways that are meaningful to your walk because what's at stake Is all that God longs to do in and your life and in and through his church as we sort of work together. Is there something God seems to be saying? What would you be willing to do about it? And what's at stake? Got it? Perfect. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us your son Jesus. And his promise is that his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Father, as we read the scriptures, would we hear your voice? Would it fall like rain? Would it be still enough for it to soak and settle? Would it come to us like bread that we would be deliberate to chew and to eat and to digest? God, and most importantly, Father, would we have the faith? to respond to what you are saying to us. Bring the right people into our lives in the coming days as we wrestle with what you are saying and what we will do, that you would use us to bear your image more beautifully in a world that desperately needs it. Father, we would see your purpose has come to fruition simply because we responded to what you have said. What a beautiful invitation. We ask all of this in the name of your son Jesus, who is our king, amen. Thank you guys so much. We'll see y'all next week, okay? Thank you, thank you, thank you.